1 Peter 2. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through, Christ, through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but, not, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Well, good morning again. Uh, my name is Ben. I'm the pastor here. Glad to be with you. Uh, we're going to spend some time reflecting on this text uh, from 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, I wonder how many of you have, have hiked the Carbide Wilson Trail in Gatineau Park. If you start from P11, uh, which is where if you ever have swum at the south end of Meech Lake in the summer, instead of heading toward the beach, you head up into the forest. Uh, Andrew, are we, are we on? Are we Okay. Do you want to keep going? Are we good? Okay, sorry. Instead of heading toward the beach, you head up into the forest, and about two kilometers later, you arrive at some ruins. And if you get there, there are remnants of a few different structures. Uh, there's this large rectangular building with windows. Uh, there's a dam. There's a circular building with strange holes in it. It really is a great hike uh, if you have older kids or if you're just an adult. If you take your toddler, um, it's terrifying. Uh, don't do that. Uh, but according to the Gatineau Park website, the ruins were once the workshop of a man named Thomas Leopold Wilson, and he was an inventor, he was a chemist, and he was experimenting with fertilizers and other kinds of petrochemicals. Now, as a casual visitor, you can make sense of the property. You're like, okay, if, I, if you read some of the documents beforehand, if you look carefully around, you can understand that the circular building was used as a generating station, and the large building with windows in it was an acid condensation tower, you know, whatever that means. But, you know, with, with, with your eyes, with your brain, you can put together the pieces of how this property once looked, how it worked. But imagine you could walk through the ruins with Wilson himself, now, he's been dead for 100 years, so obviously you can't, but imagine you could. And instead of making educated guesses, imagine if Wilson could tell you how it was supposed to work. He would tell you, oh, this is why I put the generating station here, and this is how you know, the water flowed in and the turbine worked, and this is how acid is actually condensed. Here's how it, here's how it worked. He could explain everything to you because he set it all up. You know, today, lots of people are frustrated with the church. In some ways, it feels like the North American Christian church is either in ruins or in a building that was designed ages ago. 
And we look around and we're trying to figure out why, why is this the way it is? Why is that the way it is? But how much better would it be if we weren't just left to our own devices and creativity? What if we could go and talk to the creator of the church? Imagine if Jesus could explain to us, this is how things are supposed to work. Here's, here's what this is doing. Here's what that's doing. And see, we've arrived at a very, very important part, maybe even the most important part of First Peter, because Peter's getting to the heart of the matter. He's asking these questions. What are we as a church? What are the people of God supposed to look like in the world? Later in the letter, he's going to get into all those different specifics. What about government? What about marriage? What about elders? What about this? What about that? But right now, he's giving us this sort of overall picture. What is the church? What is it supposed to be? Now, as he gives his answer, you're going to notice this passage is absolutely stuffed with Old Testament references, allusions, quotations, uh, images, and, and we just can't get to them all in, in, in any sort of reasonable depth. It, it would really take all day, but I, I want to give you the big movements. What are the big things that Peter is, is teaching us? So I have four parts to today's message. Part one, the foundation of the church. Part two, the composition of the church. Part three, the point of the church. And part four, the external mission of the church. So first, the foundation. But even before that, when I say the word church, what I'm talking about are the people of God. The word church actually comes from this Greek word, kuriakon, which just means the Lord's house or the Lord's people. And so when we speak of the foundation of the church, I'm not talking about a building. I'm talking about a collection of people. And further to that point, the church is both local and universal. Local because, you know, Resurrection Church, but also West Village, the Met, you know, whatever. They're they're local churches. These are local collections of God's people. But at the same time, we are also part of a global, universal, and, and historical church, all the people of God from all the times. So when we speak of the foundation of the church, do I mean the foundation of our church, or do I mean the foundation of the capital C church? Well, the answer is, is yes. It's both. I, we're talking about both. Who, or what is the foundation? Or who is the foundation of the church? Look at verse 4. He says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And then down in verse 6, God speaks and says, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Jesus Christ, he says, is the foundation of the church. He is its cornerstone. Now, cornerstones no longer used in modern construction. We now pour cement foundations, at least, you know, residentially we do. But in old kinds of construction, cornerstones were absolutely essential. And the larger the building, the more sort of important and and big the building was, the more important it became to select the correct cornerstone. You'd lay it first, and it became like the X, Y axis, and and sort of the, even even the Z axis, like it would be flat, upon which the rest of the building would be built. And Peter, being a Jewish man, would, of course, be familiar with the temple in Jerusalem, and he likely had in mind the western stone, which sits underneath the western wall of the temple. It's one of the heaviest objects ever lifted by unpowered machinery. It's 44 feet long, 10 feet high, and 10 feet wide. It weighs approximately 517 tons. It's just this unbelievably giant stone, and this western stone is what anchors and secures the foundation of the temple. And Peter is saying, just like that giant stone under the temple secures it, so Jesus Christ functions as the cornerstone of the church. Everything else is going to be built on him. 
It's as if Peter understands 2,000 years or so from now, these Canadians are going to be sitting around and they're going to be arguing, what does this passage mean? What does that passage mean? What about changing sexuality? What about the winds of political change? What about pandemic questions and wars? And he's trying to say, look, before you do all of that, Jesus holds this whole thing together. He's its final alignment, the final measure stick. He is the one who tells you, are you in line or are you out of line? See, if you go and read Isaiah 28, and that's the verse that Peter quotes in, in verse 6 of our passage, Isaiah 28 is actually all about judgment on Israel. God spends all this time telling them, you're wrong here, you're wrong here, this is, what I, this is the punishment for it. And then he promises them, oh, there's coming a day when I'm going to lay a new foundation. We're going to rebuild this whole thing. And the new foundation will be just and true. You know, in the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis includes this prophecy about Aslan the lion. And, he say, and Lewis writes this, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. And similarly in Isaiah, Isaiah 28, God's telling the people, this building you're in, it's all messed up. It's all out of alignment. Things are going wrong. It's crumbling. It's backwards. But a day is coming when wrong will be right because a new foundation will be laid. There'll be a new cornerstone upon which a new building will be constructed. And he tells them, Peter's saying, this cornerstone, it's Jesus. Now, of course, about Jesus, Peter acknowledges not everyone's going to see it this way. Rather, some people are going to know about Jesus and choose to reject him. That's in verse 7. While others, in verse 8, they're going to stumble over him, get offended by him. You know, as well as I, this, by the society we live in, Jesus is not recognized as a foundation by everyone. And if you're familiar with the parable of the four soils, there are sort of these four responses to Jesus. Yes, some people take him as their foundation, but other people say, take a look and say, you know, he's not for me. Others are intrigued and they stick around for a bit, but then something Jesus says offends them and, they, and it, it makes them stumble and they walk away. Others come and they grow for a while, but some other love chokes out their love for God and their, and their faith withers and dies. So Jesus warns these believers in Asia, Jesus will not be accepted as a foundation by everyone. But he is the way you can recognize every Christian church. Does it have Jesus at the bottom? Is it aligned to him? If you jettison Jesus, you can have a building, you can have a community, you can have social programming, but you don't have Christians anymore. Now part two. So if that's the foundation, what is the composition of the church? So it begins with a cornerstone, but if you look in verse 5, Peter says, or he calls, pardon me, he calls Christians almost the exact same thing. He says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. So he said, Jesus is the living stone, but we are the living stones. So if you're a Christian, you've been baptized, you've entered into the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But just before we talk about what, what does that mean to be a living stone, let's talk about how we became living stones. What came before? Skip down to verse 9 and answer a couple questions with me. What were Christians before God, or when God called them? Or where were Christians, pardon me. Where were Christians when God called them? He says they were in darkness. Verse 10, who were Christians when God called them? They were not a people. And still in verse 10, what did Christians not have when God called them? Mercy. So what kind of people are these living stones being built up into a spiritual house? They are those who formerly dealt, dwelt in darkness, alienated from God and under judgment. Which tells us something important. That there isn't a kind of person who is, quote unquote, a church person. 
There's not a personality disposition or an ethnic background or a gender or a vocation that makes someone more likely to be a Christian. The church actually is a group of people who aren't normally friends, who aren't normally together, but have been brought together. In most cases, we aren't related to each other. We have different interests, different abilities, hobbies. We have different stages of life. You don't live on my street. You know, politically, we're all over the place. Wealth-wise, we inhabit many different kinds of income brackets. What makes someone a church person is something happened to them. Or more accurately, someone happened to them. See, by the grace of God, if you are a Christian, you were taken from darkness to light, you were alone to now being part of this people, you have moved from judgment to mercy. What binds you to other Christians is what Christ has done. The church is a band of people not normally attracted to each other, but brought together by the love of Christ. In the TV series Lost, the story begins with a plane crash. This group of strangers thrust together to try and survive in the South Pacific. And as you might imagine, people on a plane have very little in common with each other except the fact that they're on the plane. That they're, that, oh, you want to go from this city to that city? I do as well. That's what, that, this is what we have in common is this idea. And what made the TV show Lost interesting, you know, before it got weird, was that every person in the show had, had these backstories and there were flashbacks. This is what their life was like before the island. Someone they loved, you know, some experience they had. But really what bound the people together, the very point of the show, without which it would not have been a show, was not the backstories, but the plane crash. That put them on the island together. See, look, what what binds Christians together, it's not a love for singing in gymnasiums on weekend mornings. It's kind of a weird hobby, if that's your hobby. But what we are bound together by is the fact that Jesus has crashed into our lives and life has never been the same. And your backstory, it may be interesting, it probably is, but that's not really why you're here. You're here because Christ has crashed into you. So if that is how we become living stones, what happens now? Well, look carefully at the verb used in verse 5. He says, Peter writes, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So we just need to have a little nerd moment here for a second. Are being built up, that's one Greek verb, and it's second person plural, present, passive, and indicative. And that's a lot of big words. Let me explain. Second person plural just means he's talking about a group of people, uh, not just one Christian, a whole group of Christians. Present means it's happening right now. Passive means the action or the, or the, the, the power is coming from an outside force. And indicative Peter's making a statement. He's trying to tell us a fact. So what does that all mean? You put it together. The church of God with all of its living stones is being assembled right now by the power of God. That's what he's saying. Are being built up. Like a master stonemason, God's picking up these living stones one by one and kind of fitting them together so the church looks the way he wants it to look. You know, when they built the original temple, they would quarry the stone from miles away and they'd kind of, you know, bring it on these rollers and different things, and then they'd shape it on site. And they actually had surprisingly sophisticated methods for getting exactly flat surfaces so the stones would fit together perfectly. There'd be no gaps, no awkward fits, no, 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 no little, you know, nubs that jut out, just these strong, smooth, enduring walls, you know, built by master uh, craftsmen. Well, that's how God's working uh, on the church. That's how, that's how he's assembling it. And, he, and amazingly, he's simultaneously doing it locally and globally. See, God's at work right now globally assembling the people of God in you know, Ghana and Bangladesh and Guatemala and everywhere else. 
He's fitting people together for his purposes. And actually, if we kind of take a step back and look at our whole world uh, together, it's clear that God is arranging his people globally so that the global south and Asian believers and African believers are, are most likely going to carry the weight of the church in the decades to come. God's building his spiritual house across our world. But also don't get lost in that scale, for God's building a spiritual house right here in Ottawa at Resurrection Church. Remember, the people to whom Peter writes are not part of giant groups of believers. These are just little, little pockets of people, little communities, little, little churches. They didn't have a lot of resources or experience, but even in those places, God was assembling a spiritual building. He's bringing the people together. And look, we hope to plant a daughter church in the near future in Gatineau. And we trust that God will do this exact same kind of work there. He's going to bring along the right living stones so a new church can be established. But the emphasis here is on the unity of the church. Despite our differences, our backgrounds, our backstories, God has crashed into us. He is bringing us together for his purposes. And as such, we aren't just forming a new temple, this house which I've been talking about, but also if you look at verse 9, Peter says Christians are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people that is God's special possession. Now, I do know that in our day, the words chosen race carry a lot of emotional weight. But what he's actually saying, Peter, he's actually trying to work against racial prejudices, working against ethnic divisions. He's saying any kind of person, any kind of skin color, any kind of background, any kind of culture, they're all included in this newfound people of God. And furthermore, the divisions in Peter's church weren't primarily by skin color, but between Jew and Gentile. And Peter is trying to emphasize, it doesn't matter, everyone's included in the people of God. But the composition of the the church, living stones being assembled together. Now part three, the point of the church. To what end does God assemble his church? What happens when we get together in this new building? Well, two things, both near the end of verse five. He says to be a royal priesthood, or or holy priesthood, pardon me, and to offer spiritual sacrifices. What does it mean to be a holy priesthood? Well, the first connection is to Christ himself. Jesus is regularly described as the high priest, the final high priest. So just like Jesus is the living stone, and we are also living stones, so Jesus is the high priest, and and we are all part of his priesthood. Notice the mixing of metaphors. Christians are the temple, but we are also the priests inside the temple. Um, It doesn't make logical sense, but it's it's a metaphor helping us understand something. What does it mean to be part of this priesthood? Well, as Western Christians, we tend to emphasize the personal aspects of being a priest. Yeah, that's not wrong. There are some personal aspects. But if you look carefully, Peter doesn't say, you are all priests. That's not what he says. He says, God made you to be a holy priesthood. Peter's emphasis is on the corporate, not the personal. Now, what did the priesthood do in the Old Testament? They did a bunch of things, but first, they were set apart. Only one tribe. You had to belong to the tribe of Levi if you wanted to be a priest. So the sense in which they're, they're different, this tribe is kind of doing their own thing. They didn't have an inheritance like everyone else. They had access to God in particular in special ways. They could enter different parts of the temple. They could offer sacrifices. In general, you can just think of it this way, they mediated God and his presence to the people. So if the church today functions as a priesthood, then collectively all of us are being called to similar things. We're set apart, we're kind of doing our own thing, but we, and we meet with God together. We call each other to obedience. We, we are conduit of God's presence to other people. You know, there's something profound 
about the collective, the community. The church gathered together, it's unique. The church can only be known by seeing it all sort of assembled together. An individual by by himself or herself cannot convey the whole priesthood. You cannot mediate the work of God by yourself to the surrounding world. It's actually one of the things that's been very difficult about COVID is it's robbed the church of a lot of its collectiveness. That even when we can't, even when we get together, still can't stand that close or whatever, that the life of the church community in some ways has been largely muted. But the church is meant to function as this whole. But that's not all. He says, so Christians are this holy priesthood. But second, they offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Well, what kind of sacrifices do Christians offer? It's not animals. Give you that. Yeah, we know we're not, you know, killing goats or or birds or whatever for our sins. Jesus Christ has been offered as the final sacrifice. So, what kind of sacrifices do Christians make? Well, at times the scriptures speak of specific things as sacrifices: singing to God, giving Him money. This, these are called sacrifices. But the main spiritual sacrifice that Christians are called to make is actually themselves. And Romans 12 is the most famous example of this. Verse 1, he says, uh, the Apostle Paul there urges the believers to present their bodies as living sacrifices, and then he calls it spiritual worship. Very, very similar language to Peter. So get this. Peter says the church, the people of God, are simultaneously the temple, the priests in the temple, and the sacrifices the priests are offering in the temple. It's like, church inception or something. It's like going, kind of going all the way down these steps. But additionally, just think of it this way. We're reflecting Christ again. He was a living stone. We are living stones. He is the high priest. We are the priesthood. He is the final perfect sacrifices. We are also spiritual sacrifices. See, what the church does is it gathers together, um, and as it is built up, is we simply offer ourselves to God in service. And I might argue that's actually harder and more difficult than simply, you know, charging an exorbitant membership fee or, or, making, or making the joining process, you know, really arduous because what God tells us he wants from us is us. Br- br- bring you, bring, bring what you do, bring what you have. Offer that as a sacrifice. Well, that's probably more challenging than saying, you know, bring this amount of money. A friend was telling me a couple weeks ago about how much pastoring uh, took out of him, and specifically how his heart uh, has been broken, you know, by people who who leave the church, uh, especially during this COVID season. And strangely, that means that this pastor is doing a good job, because it means he's let people in, he's cared, he's given of his very self, and then therefore it hurts, you know, when people leave. See, there's another option instead of giving yourself and it's just not a great option. The other option is you can come to church with your armor on and you can protect yourself and you can not let anyone get too close to you and you can come with sort of high walls and a deep moat and in that case, you're not offering yourself, you're coming to God and say, this is what I will give and no more. Like that's technically an option but that's not what God told us to do. What, what Peter and Paul write to us is that God wants us. Spiritual sacrifice is you. <laughs> so bring yourself. So what are we doing here? What is the point of the church? Peter says we are functioning as a holy priesthood, offering ourselves to God in service. Okay, finally, part four. The external mission of the church. One might argue that chapter two, verses 11 and 12, the last two verses of our reading here, are the thesis 
of Peter's letter. They are his grand point. And, may, and maybe you should you know, take this up as a challenge to memorize these ones, kind of lo, you know, lodge them away somewhere in your head because these are good ones. Remember, Peter is writing to a people under, under threat and under pressure and not primarily from within. Lots of the letters in the New Testament, Paul's all worried about what about this and these people are causing divisions. In, in 1 Peter, it's quite different. They're mainly under threat from without. The world is squeezing them and it's pushing them and in some cases beginning to persecute them. And so really at the front of Peter's mind, and he's like, look, we've, we've waded through this grand theology, and that's really important, but Peter wants to tell them what to do with a world that despises them. And so he first calls them beloved, dear friends. It's this term of intimacy and closeness. And then he urges them to do something. And urging means that there's, there's passion and pleading in his voice. And he tells his dear friends to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against their souls. It's kind of interesting. Greco-Roman culture had worship long before Christianity ever came along. They had sacrifices and songs. They had priests and priestesses uh, and, and temples. None of that stuff was new. It wasn't like Christians came along like, ooh, singing. We'd, you know, they, they, they've been doing all those things, but the worship was different. See, Greco-Roman religious practice was to take some aspect of human existence, like motherhood or sex or death or war or alcohol, some aspect of human existence, and they'd give it a name and say, this is Venus or it's Mars or it's Pluto or it's, or it's Bacchus or whatever. And if you want more of that thing, if that is the thing you love most in the world, then you sacrifice for that God and you sing to that God goddess and you visit its temple in hopes that 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 deity will give you more of what you desire and it's interesting because that's a very basic definition of idolatry here is something good here's something i want and now it becomes the most important thing i take the worship that should be set upon the true god and i set it upon something lesser and peter tells them stop doing that you are waging war against yourself the sacrifices, the temple visits, all that, you, you are doing damage to your inner being. It's almost a way of summing up this whole first part of the letter. He tells them, you don't really belong. You're exiles, you're sojourners in this world. Don't let the passions, the desires of this life get too close. Don't get captivated by them. Embrace the new life that Christ brings. But that isn't all he tells them. See, we almost might expect at this point that Peter would tell them, hey, look, in light of the difficulty, the temptation, the resistance, maybe just join me in rural Greece. I'm going to set up a compound, you know, where it's all going to be Christians, and we're going to be safe. That's not what he says. The Christian faith, listen to me, the Christian faith from day one has always been a missionary faith. It has always had an evangelistic calling it is always understood that just as Jesus was sent as a light into a dark place, so each of us, we too are sent. I mean, to be a community, to be a city on a hill, but to be a witness and a light and as salt, to be missionaries just like our missionary God, that's what Christianity has always been like. And so Peter tells them, don't go live on a compound in the middle of nowhere. Live honorable lives among your neighbors. So even if they malign you or even when they malign you, and they lie about you. They'll see your good deeds and they'll glorify God. It's almost word for word what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Where Jesus said, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. I'm sure this is what Peter was thinking about. 
But look, this verse assumes Christians will be in proximity to non-Christians. It assumes it, that non-Christians will be close enough to see your life and to see your behavior. And not just in the good times, but in the times when you're being unfairly treated and people are lying about you and maligning you. So we're going to say more about this in the weeks to come, but we kind of end here. We are a church that's gathered, and we are a church that's scattered. Gathered because we do gather, because Christ is, is building us into this community. We're gathered on the cornerstone of him. We're being built into this house where we're all offering what we can bring. But we are also scattered because we depart our worship services and our small groups and our friendships to be light and salt to our neighbors, to our friends and our colleagues. This is what God calls us to be and what he enables us to be. Maybe heed, maybe heed his voice. Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful for this text, for the letter from Peter, written thousands of years ago, but extremely timely and helpful for us as we seek to be good citizens of Canada, but citizens of your heavenly kingdom as well. Please uh, sink these truths deep into our hearts. Help us to believe them. Help us to live according to them. In Christ's name, amen.